It's very rare you get a chance to talk to a major league probate attorney. Today, we literally have a certified with a fancy logo over his shoulder, major league probate attorney from San Diego, California, repeat guest here on Probate Weekly, Zach Whitman. Zach, thanks so much for coming back to our show. Thanks for having me. And fresh off the plane from Scotland to London. So we appreciate you flying all across the world just to be here with us today. <laughs> I had to rush back because I didn't want to miss it. <laughs> well, thanks so much. So let's talk a little bit, of, uh, kind of guess the groundwork on your firm. You're in San Diego. Uh, you work for Antonio and uh, Miranda. You're your attorney there. Uh, you guys are a big firm with a broader base of business. You personally, um, describe for me where your focus is, probate administration, probate litigation, estate planning, all three. One of those, where do you really focus your time? Yeah, so for me, I started originally as an estate planner. That was the primary purpose of my practice after I left um, corporate law. So I was doing mergers, acquisitions before coming down to San Diego. I started in state planning, uh, then started dabbling in some probate admins. Now my practice is 95% probate litigation, mm. um, almost exclusively litigation. I am the sole estate planner within our, our firm. It's not a huge part of our business. Most of our estate planning is for existing divorce clients. Uh, for our firm, our firm started and is is known as a divorce firm first first and foremost. Um, so we do estate planning for our existing divorce clients. We will do estate plans otherwise, but um, ninety five percent of our business is is true uh, probate litigation, um, contested matters, capacity cases, undue influence, the the whole gamut of litigation. So that's, and that's a, I mean, there's a wide variety of what that looks like when you say probate litigation. And I don't think it's so often I'll be in a, a chat room with somebody or I have a Facebook group and people say, well, I need an attorney. You know, what do you need them to do? Oh, well, I have a question about the fence. Well, that's a different attorney than, uh, you know, I stand to inherit, you know, half a million dollars and there's somebody who claims to be my brother who's not. Those are two different worlds. Or somebody signed my mother to a uh, quick claim deed while she's on her deathbed. So describe kind of, if you could, you know, give me the pie chart of where the, what the cases look like in your litigation practice. How much of that is elder law or elder law abuse or um, uh, versus two you know, beneficiaries fighting over who gets to uh, be the administrator of the probate? Yeah, it's, it's pretty evenly split, I would say. Um, probably a third of our case makeup is beneficiary representation for uh, breach of fiduciary duty type cases. So embezzlement or mishandling of trust funds. The, another third is a, a uh, invalidating type cases where we're seeking to invalidate a trust or a will. Um, a th another third is probably just kind of generally contested probate administration. So uh, intestate succession, but trying to uh, oppose the appointment or who's going to run the estate or issues within the estate administration. Um, we don't do a whole lot of trust defense work, though we would like to do more. Um, that's that's an, the better side of the case to typically be on financially, but um, for the most part, our cases tend to make up being the beneficiary representative. Well, I'll give you a little business hint. If you write worse trusts, you'll be in more litigation on those trusts. <laughs> sure, yeah. Okay, so let's cover from the top. Beneficiary representation. Somebody's passed and another person is thinks they're due money and all of a sudden somebody is running the probate and they'll say, hey, uh, there was a house, there's money, uh, it's disappeared, or there's a bank count or two, and they disappeared. So what what can a um, a prospective beneficiary do? It's expensive to hire an attorney, right? 
So what are kind of the parameters and what's the case kind of look like that gets you involved? Um, so the, the a beneficiary has a lot of rights and a lot of authority within a trust for information and accountings and, and uh, disclosures. So the, the position of trustee is kind of a lose-lose situation to be candid. If you're a trustee, you're only going to fail. You can't really succeed. You can do satisfactory or, or, or do it poorly. There's not a great trustee. You just have done the job properly. So the, a beneficiary who has questions of the trustee's actions, they, they have a lot of rights in probate court for accountings and, and disclosures. So um, the, the main goal is to hold the trustee accountable for what they're doing, what they've done with the trust money. And, and it changes depending on when they became trustees. Some trustees become trustee before the elder has passed away. If there's an issue of capacity, they can become trustee long before the, the person passes. And the, the duties to the beneficiaries date back to the day they became the trustee. So um, what we see a lot of is long-lasting trusts that maybe were not the best drafted trusts that have five, 10 years of required administration. And that's a lot of information that a beneficiary is owed. And um, maybe they're not getting it or maybe what they're getting from the trustee is deficient. So we go to court and, and, and get court orders for disclosures and um, accountings. And then we start picking apart the actions of the trustee to see where maybe they fell short. And if they dip their hand in the pocket a little bit here and there, then we'll hold them accountable under the probate code and try to call back the funds and penalize the trustee above and beyond. So that's is, kind of the, the general approach. What's the requirement for disclosure of a trust and or the the provisions of a trust to a beneficiary? I get a common case I get, and I'm sure other realtors get, is somebody suspects they should be inheriting their child or their uh, you know whatever next in line, and they know so-and-so passed three months ago, four months ago, and the bad guy has the trust. He's not disclosing anything. They suspect he's raiding their bank accounts. So I know that there is a, I believe there's a code that they're required in California to disclose to the beneficiaries the existence of a trust and the general provisions. What are those disclosure requirements in California? Yeah, so, well, once the trust is being administered, the, tr the trustee owes duties, annually accountings. Um, uh, the terms of the trust can change the re the responsibilities. They can shorten the deadlines under the terms of the trust. Uh, generally, the if you demand an information from a trustee, that's usually about a 60-day required waiting period for the produce of records and, and accountings and whatnot. Um, you can sometimes get that shortened by the court if there's uh, exigent circumstances or reason you don't trust the trustee or the, they're they're swiftly taking action. The property's on market. Uh, you know they're taking it to market and um, you can you can go in next party or shorten time uh, to not wait the full 60 days of following your request for information. Um, but usually it's it's uh, six months or a year is usually the the routine required reporting unless you demand otherwise. And if you demand otherwise and have a good basis for a demand, they usually have about 60 days to respond. If they don't respond within that time frame, you're, feel free to run over to the probate court and ask them for that. Ask for some help on that. Yeah. So so you should be notified if you otherwise would inherit in a probate, meaning if they pass and testate and you're the next of kin or one of the next, they should be notifying you. Would they affirmatively have an obligation to notify you or do you have the obligation to request it and then wait the 60 days? Um, 
industry norm versus probate code is a little different on that. Mm. Uh, you're required to deposit the will with the probate court uh, within, I think it's six months. Um, but that doesn't happen very often. Right. Maybe there's a trust and there's no reason to deposit the will. So you don't want to go through that process of opening a probate administration. Right. So you kind of just shrug your shoulders at the probate code with that, that situation. But um, in my practice on trust administration, the first thing I'm doing is sending a 1606 1.7 notice, a trustee notice under the probate code to all beneficiaries and intestate heirs, whether you're a named beneficiary or not. That starts the timeline to challenge the validity of the trust. So that's 120 day challenge deadline. Pretty common practice is as soon as you're retained for trust administration, you're sending out that trustee notice that contains a copy of the trust and your what rights you may or may not have under it. So uh, to, just to go back on that again, so you're sending out a copy of the trust to all the parties who either are or would normally be beneficiaries of the estate, uh, a copy of the trust, and then you give them a timeline by which they can object. If you don't do that, then that timeline hasn't started yet. So theoretically, if they don't give you a copy of it, six months later and you reach out for it, your timeline starts at that time. Right. So you're not barred from challenging the validity of the trust document until your probate code 1606 1.7 trust notice deadline has passed. Got it. So I'll, some, I've had a few cases where I get retained six months, a year after the person passed away, the trustee, the original trustee trust or passed away. And they they say, well, we're good. We, they've spent six months or a year. There's There are a lot of statute limitations for one year after the date of death to make claims against the estate. But to challenge the validity of the trust document, if you haven't got your 1606 1.7 notice, your 120 day deadline to challenge that has not yet. So you, you, you may still have an opportunity to invalidate the trust document. Just a quick housekeeping. This is Probate Weekly. We do this every Thursday, 4 p.m. live Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern. We live stream it on YouTube, Facebook, and LinkedIn. If you're watching on the live streams, feel free to put your comments there, and I'll do my best to bring you in and answer them along the way. Uh, if you want to sign up for the Zoom, go to probateweekly.com. Love to have you come in. Number one, feel free to network. I see Mark Pedroza. Uh, put your name, contact info, where you do business, what you're looking for, and let's all do some business together. And then if you have questions as well, either raise your hand or put in the chat box. I'll try to catch there and participate. I'll warn you, I've, I, I you know, Zach and I have, have had a few conversations. So I could do this for a couple hours. Uh, I, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. If you guys don't raise your hand and jump in. And I think this call takes me more technical because we're fortunate to have somebody who really is an expert and a practitioner in the litigation and some of these details. So, uh, you know, buckle your seatbelts if you're a little concerned about some of the detail. I'll do my best to capture uh, any jargon. And if I miss a word that you don't understand, please feel free to put it in the chat box to ask me to go back and catch that. While I have you on the call, so again, Probate Weekly is the call. And then separately, we have a Facebook group. If you want to continue the conversation there, we'd love to have you do that. That's Facebook's uh, Probate Weekly is the name of the Facebook group. We have 3,300 members there. Uh, you can ask questions there. You can put referrals for attorneys looking for referrals for looking for referrals for real estate agents, as well as post your probate content. And we'd love to have that content shared both for us to learn as well as to uh, help you get some views and some some Google love and some Facebook love. And then uh, my information, linktr.ee link slash Bill Gross is all things I'm working on. And upcoming, I have on November 15th, the week from yesterday, email mastermind class. The program is focused on getting your email database together to drive your business and marketing and such. 
Um, and so feel free to check that out if you want to. It's on the link tree. There's the email mastermind class. I'd love to have you guys join us. $97. Uh, and there's, some, there's a promo code if you're with the EXP Realty um, as well. And then lastly, our guest today, Zach Whitman, is with Antonio Miranda, which is a really big law firm in San Diego, real known law firm in San Diego. They do a lot of divorce. They're probably best known for divorce. But I came across Zach on a case a couple years ago, and I just really found him to be a great resource to teach us along the way about the probate. And he's been very generous to join in there. So thank you again, Zach, for joining us. <clears throat> okay. So we talked a little bit about um, uh, notification and such. Um, I recently had a case actually in San Diego where I was the, was the uh, fiduciary. I was the administrator of a, of a probate. And um, some most people know there's a statutory limit for fees for attorneys that they get paid. And there's a there's a formula for that. And the exact same formula actually for the administrator of the state, if it's not provided for. In a trust, do trusts normally um, provide for fees or is there similarly a statute that guides the uh, compensation of the trustee? The trust language will control that. So the trust, I would say probably the most litigated term in all trust litigation is the term reasonable compensation. And what is reasonable compensation for a trustee uh, very much depends on the qualifications of the trustee. If you are a lay person acting as trustee, you're not entitled to the same level of compensation as a bank. If Wells Fargo is acting as trustee versus Joe Schmo down the, down the street. They're not going to get the same compensation. Interesting. So a lot of the trust, the trust I draft, I do not use the term reasonable compensation because it's going to result in litigation. Right. Uh, what you normally do, you look to the the published trust uh, compensation schedule from the corporate trustees, the banks. They publish their annual compensation that they require from a trust. And I put that if you are not a corporate trustee, you get half the compensation, which usually amounts to between half a percent and one percent of the, the value of the trust administration on an annual basis. So if you're running a million dollar state annually, you can do the math from there and and that's what you get on an annual basis. So it's very different compensation than uh, the probate administration, which is statutory fee compensation based on the, the sliding scale of valuations, fair market valuations of the assets you probate. So trust trust compensation is significantly different. That probably explains why fiduciaries are so into um, licenses and titles and certification. Like their the signature line has like 15 different initials after it because they are you know, maybe properly demonstrating their expertise, maybe as an attorney and a realtor and an accountant and a this and a that, uh, and therefore they're able to defend a higher fee than a layperson. I guess that's what that's about. Exactly. So if the trust, the trustee fiduciary acting can show they're a licensed bonded fiduciary, they're entitled to higher compensation than if they can't. But still debatable as to what's customary, I guess. Right. right. Usually county specific um, in San Diego for a professional, you're looking at probably uh, three quarters to 1% a year, maybe up to one and a half if they had to do extraordinary measures. If it was a really complicated administration, they may be able to, to ask the court for instructions for higher compensation. Uh, but usually that 1% for a professional and a half for a lay person is pretty standard. And so that's pretty much in line with, excuse me, a bank that, or a, let's say a, a wealth management company that, buys you stocks, bonds, and different investment vehicles, and they they may negotiate the lowest commissions or not charge you commissions, but then charge you a management fee of half to 1%. That's kind of the thought behind it. How about when 
the uh, trust involves disposing of assets like real estate in particular? Do they get higher fees for that or, or extra charges for that? Or they, they can. It depends on if it's being litigated. So if it's a non-litigated trust administration, they can put a higher figure, and as long as a beneficiary is not opposing of it, it can get get through. It's not court supervised. So um, that's the the variable. If it's a court supervised administration, and they have to take extraordinary measures, they're going to be filing a petition for instructions with the court to approve their compensation. And then the beneficiaries will have their their day in court to oppose it, and ultimately the court will will rule on what's reasonable compensation for the trustee and the trustee's attorney. And can those can trustees also serve other capacities like a real estate agent and collect normal real estate agent fees or accountant and charge normal account fees or legal fees? And and it's um, I would say it's a bad idea because it's only going to give the litigator more ammunition. Right. Uh, I recently had a case where the the attorney was also a licensed real estate agent that forego some trustee uh, attorney representation compensation for their real estate commission and um i did not find them to be a qualified real estate agent because their primary practice is law I'm, i don't pretend to know i can market a property better than a real estate agent and when they sold, they fell out of escrow three or four times and sold it for $50,000 under asking, I used that as ammunition in the probate court to say, cut their fees even lower. It shows how unqualified they were versus how qualified they were. And I got them, I got them removed. So um, it's, it's probably a bad idea unless you're exceptionally good at your job to be wearing multiple hats. Yeah. Trust administrations are inherently complicated. And adding more variables to it is only going to cause more problems um so i would generally say probably a bad idea but not ethically prohibited and i think when i when i meet fiduciaries who act as both i always feel like i probably don't want to work with them because they're kind of saying to me they're maximizing their compensation maybe at the expense of the customer or client and that's not normally going to work in the long run so uh, i have to stay away so let's talk about those people though the those fiduciaries are people who would hire attorneys once something goes into litigation. So imagine for you that become, those are prospective customers are both victims or, or not victims. They're the objects of your litigation. And then yeah. on the flip side, they would be, I think, prospective customers hiring you to protect them or defend them in those cases as well. Correct. Correct. Yeah. That's, I mean, kind of, that's kind of the whale for us really. If we can get in with a high level professional fiduciary and be their go-to, that would be a, a very good revenue source for us as the as the attorneys. the The most common situation is when you're you're attacking a a, a layperson, a family member, trustee for their malfeasance. The first thing you're going to do is ask the court to remove them and put in a professional fiduciary. So they're not necessarily the 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 direct target. They inherit the mess. And then they just sit on the nest egg making out routine distributions or distributions pursuant to court order. They also retain counsel, though. They retain representation that appears in court or mediations and depositions. And that, to begin, that's the kind of the dream for, for us trust litigators to just sit and watch the, the fight from afar and hit right. easy syllables. But um, 
We don't do a whole lot of that here. We we want to be on the beneficiary side or the trust side in the fight. We like we like the fight. Um, it's kind of what our firm is known for is we don't shy away from litigation. We don't shy away from trial where a lot of uh, uh, attorneys don't want to do the trial. They'll get up to right. the eve of trial and they'll bring a trial counsel. We we don't. We want to take trials here. We want to be trial attorneys. So that's kind of what distinguishes us a little bit and why we don't represent trustees as often because we want to be in the fight and instead of watching the fight to the sidelines. So I often get, because I'm active in real estate, and I'm sure people on the call, real estate agents as well, get the, you know, the phone call, hey, um, you know, my, my aunt passed or my mom passed, and I'm one of three or four siblings, and so, you know, my my brother is uh, cheating, blah, 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 um, and it, you know, it might not be enough equity in the property to generate revenue, or they may not have the money. So what kind of is a guideline that somebody should bring to an a law firm, let's say your law firm, what would become a, is there a minimum equity at issue or is there a minimum amount of money up front that they have to be able to fund? Because I'm I'm sure litigating a case can cost cash wise a couple hundred thousand dollars in the blink of an eye, I would think. It, it could, there's not really a, a hard bottom line for us. Um, the ultimate question is how much is the fight worth it? If if $100,000 is more than you're gonna inherit, logically maybe doesn't make sense to be in the fight but if the fight's not about the finances and it's more about the vendetta that i mean that's not not uncommon in probate that it's really about right. childhood grievances and and less about the inheritance um they may be willing to zero out their inheritance to to stick it to their brother and that's fine by me if you if you want but the the the, the issue with probate administration versus trust administration, probate administration statutory fees are based on fair market value, not the equity. So if you have a million dollar property that's fully leveraged at 900,000, the statutory fees is not based off the $100,000 equity, it's based off the million dollar fair market value. Right. And that's why the property ends up having to be liquidated nine times out of 10 to cover the statutory fees. If there's not $30,000 of equity, then we have to liquidate we have to we have to find the funds to pay the attorney's fees which right. almost always comes from what equity is in the property right trust administration maybe is very different maybe we don't care about the equity or maybe we care about it more depends on what the ultimate goal of the client is is it is it vengeance or inheritance and often trust administration really the goal is just to kind of manage the pipeline of money and keep it you know evenly distributed and keep those those checks going for all the family members just it's not the same goal whereas probably by its nature is a one-time event right they're trying to close it out quickly and efficiently and, and trusts are often designed to be um for a longer period of time i guess yeah i, I actually got scolded by by one of our probate judges not too long ago for uh, the, effectively the quote was you don't rent properties in probate administration we had a rental property we were continuing to rent the property to increase the the the, the cash on hand for the estate to pay fees and she, she goes no you have to sell this house you have to get moving you're gonna i'm gonna start penalizing you and sanctioning you for not administering the estate and in a trust that maybe is the perfect option is to continue right. to rent until there's enough cash on hand right. but in probate administration the point is to efficiently move that estate through to final distribution if liquidating the the, the main asset or all the assets is required then it's required 
the trust, maybe the purpose of the trust is longevity. Maybe the purpose of the trust is a dynasty trust to provide for generations of uh, family to come. And then you have ongoing administration. That's very different from probate where they want you to push it through, get it done and get it distributed. Because the longer it's not, the longer it's on the court's docket and the more cases and the more bogged down the system is. The judge does not want that case on the clock. Keep the thing moving. Stay out of the way. It's a train going downhill for sure. But just to clarify, when you say not rental and probate, one of the heirs can buy out the others and keep the property and rent it. They just have to dispose of the property from the estate, but the heirs can do whatever they want with it if they're able to afford that. Sure. If they have cash, they can can buy out the other side's inheritance or fully fund the, the reserve. That's right. a part of the problem as well, is funding the reserve, paying the fees. Right. If, there, if there's debts of the estate that need to be satisfied, you may be coming up with more than you expect. But if right. they if they want to get the property, there are certainly options and ways to keep the property. Right. You just got to have the cash for it. Right. Well, and I would just say, uh, FYI, I, I finance those too. I do uh, trust to uh, probate estates to flip the property you know, temporarily, and then they refinance it in the name of the, of the heir ultimately. So we can do it without cash. Uh, I've done those... Uh, a few of those actually, and it's it's convenient for the customer because they don't have the cash, but they want to keep the property. It might be a great rental for whatever reason, or they just want to keep it. So just kind of put that out to everybody in the call. So let's move a little bit. One yeah. of the top. Oh, it's still cash. It just doesn't matter to me where it comes from. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. At all. Doesn't matter to you at all. No, not one bit. Yeah. <laughs> as long as deposits, we transfer title, and yeah. the judge doesn't care as long as that uh, probate closes out. They just they just want those cases moving. Do not. Do not get in the way of the judge in the case, man. That's the one place you never want to be. I I, I used to go to court every day pre-COVID and even now I go once in a while. And you'll see people propose things that delay things. You can just see the judge, like steam comes out of their ear. They do not want things held up. That's just, that's number one. Well, and that's that's a great opportunity for an attorney to be creative. And right. if you can be creative and come up, if there's a stalemate that's gonna, going to end up in a trial on some issue, if you can give the judge an option here's do at least do this part they're going to side with you they're going to think hey you're being useful to me versus the other side which is just wants to continue to litigate right. and that's where I've, I've found great success in special administration if right. you can if you need to liquidate the property but you're going to ultimately fight over distribution well let's liquidate it under special administration while we wait for a trial date on distribution so and it's a great way to be creative. As long as you're giving the judge an option to to make advancement, they're gonna they're gonna favor you. So let's talk about that because that's a that is a great solution. That probate uh, uh, what's the what's the word again? Um, major league probate attorneys, not your average attorney, but major league probate attorneys uh, use as appropriate regularly. And I find that the attorneys that dabble in probate never think about. I literally just got a phone call for a, a, a referral where it's a limited authority and there is a little bit of an issue, but really it's a solvable issue. You can make it full authority if you just do a couple of things. The same with with um, uh, special uh, administration that you can have both sides wanting to kill each other literally, but there's no reason to keep the property in the middle. You can find some way to get the property, appoint somebody special administrator, appoint, agree on who the, the realtor is. The money all goes into a blocked account or whatever you know form you want. Get the property sold so there's no more mortgage payments, taxes, squatters, and risks. And that's the solution that I think, again, the the, the major league probate attorneys know and the minor league ones just don't even think about. Yeah, it's it's. I'm seeing more people do it 
now. I wish that I, I'd like them to stop so I can keep it to myself. But uh, <laughs> it, it, is, it is becoming more, more acceptable in probate, at least in San Diego. Most of our cases are in San Diego County. Um, so they're, they're, it's becoming a more acceptable principle uh, with the judges here. We've had a turnover in judges since the last time I was on here. We have uh, three relatively new probate judges in San Diego, which is uh, unheard of. We had uh, Judge uh, Bostwick and Judge Kelly that were with probate for 16, 17 years in San Diego. Um, so they were set in their ways, but we have three new judges that are a little bit more receptive to creativity. Um, and that's that's a great a great time to be creative and sell the property, blocked count or holding escrows for the funds while we continue to litigate is a, is a great option. Yeah, I think so for sure. So that's definitely one. And for the realtors of the call, something you might want to talk about the attorney if they don't know about for sure, or refer your customer to a major league probate attorney instead of a minor league probate attorney. Let's shift a little bit to uh, another area of litigation, which is invalidating the trust or will. Um, the most common case that comes to mind to me is elderly parent, caregiver, uh, or elderly parent in some sort of a home situation, and the bad son or daughter coming in and get something signed that changes the whole ballgame. They had a trust, now it's out of the trust, or they they had a will that distributed evenly, now everything goes to the, the beloved child that took care of the kid uh, all along. Uh, do you get those kind of cases, and what's the common case story look like? Yeah, we get a lot of those. Um, unfortunately, uh, the caregiver case is far too common. And my speculation is the next three to five years, it's only going to increase yeah. as we see what happened during the COVID lockdown. The, yeah. the issues of what happened during COVID and the pandemic and what, what changes to documents an elder may be made during the last three years, um, I think is going to be very prevalent for the next three to five years. Um, that's going to be a very common fact pattern. But yeah, we have a lot of caregiver cases where the caregiver is is received the full or, or significant portion of the trust distribution uh, through a late in life a change that's a questionable either capacity or undue influence. Um, thankfully, the presumption is uh, against the caregiver. So if a caregiver is the primary beneficiary of a trust where they receive caregiving payment for caregiving services, the presumption is it was the product of undue influence and is generally uh, invalidatable, avoidable uh, through through challenge. But again, you have to challenge it within the, the proper deadlines. If you've been served with trustee notice, um, a certificate of independent review can change that, that presumption significantly. Uh, but yeah, that's probably the most common is, is a caregiver receiving. Um, the second most common is, is a, a relatively estranged child that came back into their life and all of a sudden is now the primary beneficiary uh of, of the trust document or the will is right. is uh also very common so what are i guess the first question i would ask is what are flags the obvious flag is a lack of a relationship uh consistency and if they're getting paid as a caregiver that would those would be obvious flags are there any other obvious flags or fact patterns that kind of raise your antennas and say this this one becomes easier to to attack? Uh, I mean, significant changes is is a very big red flag. Most people are pretty set in their ways, um, especially if you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s. You've you're pretty steadfast in your beliefs at that point, and um, it's pretty uncommon for a child to be fully disinherited. The, the 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 moral sense of parenthood 
typically they want to still provide for the estranged child. Um, so if they're fully disinherited, there's a reason. Um, there's something happened in their life and there's a basis for that. And if they've come back in without some form of intervention or some family regathering, um, that's going to be pretty questionable and um, give a good basis for a challenge. If, if, if you've been fully disinherited and you're back in, the family will either know why in a good way or a bad way. What are, you know, and I had a case where I had an elderly uh, family member who um, was living on her own with a caregiver. And um, we've had a couple of back experiences in our family with caregivers where relatively minor embezzlements, you know, relatively speaking, it's all relative unless it's your money. Um, uh, but I, at least I was checking the public records every 30 days to see if there's any documents filed. Uh, you know, that's one thing that I do because it was my my aunt in this case. What are what are good practices to protect an elderly family member from or, you know, whether it be your parent you know, protecting your inheritance and or protecting a family member where you're concerned about them being taken advantage of? I think just right, routine contact. Stay in touch with your family. Stay in touch with your parents, your grandparents. Um, they'll, if there's somebody new in their life, they're likely to be telling you about it. They're, right. they're going to be telling you stories. Um, they're going to be telling you about this person. And if you have questions about them, start checking on them. Um, yeah. But uh, a concept I talk a lot about is what I would consider the expectation of inheritance. You said you mentioned protecting your inheritance. Well, it's not yours until you, it's yours. And True. so um, the the presumption is that everybody has capacity and, and it's their their decisions. And that's the that's the starting point is the, the trust and or, or will that's their decision if you're not getting it sol it's not really your place it's their decision as long as it was truly their decision if it has been their their, their mind has been superseded or usurped by the other person that's the situation we're worried about but if it's truly their decision it's not yours. It's their, right. it's their, their estate, their hard work. I, I don't know. I have a, <laughs> no, I agree with you. In fact, in this case, it's funny because I use that verbiage and it, it turned out it was an aunt that for all I knew did disinherit me. I didn't really care. I cared that she not have her inheritance taken because she was using the money to provide for herself. And, and she was otherwise defenseless as she got older. And we noticed things around the house. We noticed things, her car, had damage that the caregiver was allowing her to drive when she clearly shouldn't have been. And some of the things that we were just concerned about her safety and well-being. But you're absolutely right. Who knows? Until until you get the actual document opened up, you never know that's, what's that's yours. A great, a great situation to, to explore a conservatorship. So right. while the elders elders living and they're they're declining, right. maybe they need some help. That's an opportunity to explore a conservatorship. And maybe they have testamentary documents that are are sound and and justifiable and then you, you can't get a conservatorship because it's not the least restrictive means or it's a very carefully tailored conservatorship but if you're worried about an elder while they're living conservatorships are a great avenue to uh investigate and explore and and hold things accountable um while they're living and then once they pass away and you all the documents come out come to light well, then we reassess and, and see what we need to do from there. But a conservatorship, um, Britney Spears obviously changed a lot of that conversation quite a bit, but 
um, the probate conservatorship of an elder is is can be pretty straightforward if there truly is a lack of capacity and they need help. Right. So let's move a little bit to kind of general uh, probate administration when you have contests, I guess, where maybe you have uh, multiple siblings uh, filing petitions to be the administrator of the of the court. Uh, now, you're licensed in California exclusively? Exclusively California. Okay. So for from a California law point of view, uh, is there a presumption for which of the siblings? Does the older sibling have a priority? Is it, uh, of course, in-state versus out-of-state residents would be an issue? Criminal background might be an issue. What, what are the general issues as far as determining priority of who, who, who's going to be uh, approved by the court to be the administrator? If we're all upstanding citizens and on the same generational level, um, it's going to be who can make the most compelling argument. It's not, there is no seniority and age that, that matters. Um, we favor in-state residents versus out-state residents, but it's not a conclusive decision, but it's uh, it, it affects the bond, the bond requirements to an extent. Um, but the, the next generation, so children before grandchildren, there's a priority for children before grandchildren. If, you're, if you have a criminal background or you have bankruptcies, probably not going to get appointed to run the estate because you have fiduciary duties. So um, if the court's going to be worried about you absconding with funds or you cannot get bonded, um, you're you're going to lose that that fight 10 out of 10 uh, against your, your sibling that has an upstanding record and is a senator or whatever we want, whatever we want to say is going to be what is your background and ability to manage money and uh, how honest are you and trustworthy. Um, but ultimately, that's a triable decision. You can have an evidentiary trial on which of the siblings should run the estate. And that's, to me, a, a, a gross waste of time and money to fight that all the way to a trial because you're going to, it's going to take you a year to get to that point to just to have a court decide which of these two siblings is actually going to run the estate, that's a great time to consider a fiduciary and a great time to just agree to a neutral fiduciary to run the estate. And you said, just collect your money. Um, but it's a, that's a very enjoyable fight for me. I have a couple of those cases that I, I truly enjoy the, the fight on, on our end, but it's, it's not usually in the probate's best interest to continue that fight long, long term. By definition, because of your your law firm and the business you do, you're going to get more of the gloves are off and we're going we're going to war, probate battles. But on the normal probate, you know, so and so files. They don't know if the other sibling is. The other sibling does. They can't come to agreement. I see regularly where maybe one of the attorneys will be the fiduciary, the other attorney will be the attorney of record. That way, they're both kind of getting the fees and they kind of work together and protect their customer. Is that a good solution? I mean, both attorneys get some money out of it. Is sure. that a good solution for the for the estate and for the court? Could be. If, if it, the good solution for the estate is whatever makes the most progress, whatever gets you to final distribution sooner. Um, if it's going to be a fight for appointment, whatever option you can get is going to is going to be better than no option. Um, if you if that's a if that's an arrangement the attorneys can come to to share the fees and. Uh, both attorneys are happy with that. I, I don't see a, a negative 
way to that. Maybe I've burned too many bridges with my fellow fellow attorneys in San Diego. I probably wouldn't do it. Um, but our firm also isn't, we don't do statutory administration. So that's not part of our business model here, but I could see it working with, with some other colleagues for sure. Okay, when they've hired you, they've already made the decision that they want to litigate, but with other attorneys, they've hired them to file. And so that's way a way to solve the issue is get them to come to some agreement. If they don't, then they should give you a call and litigate. And that, that becomes a different, a different path. Yeah, um, okay, good. Hey, this has been kind of, I've enjoyed and I've learned a lot. I hope you guys are as well. Uh, and I know we're going a little bit in the weeds here, uh, but Zach is, is a um, major league probate attorney. In fact, in the over shoulder, you see the logo. That's the official logo. It's actually other firm. It's like a marketing piece, right? What is it? Tell me about your marketing and what the MLP and the ML, I think D is the other one you guys do too, right? Yeah. So that, that's all the brainchild of, of Tim Miranda. Um, one of our founding partners, he does all of our marketing. We're very well known for our billboards, um, our billboard marketing in San Diego. We've actually just opened a new office in Newport Beach. So we have oh, wow. a brick order in Newport Beach. We're expanding up into Orange County and, and then uh, hopefully up into LA County. So uh, those those folks driving around in uh, Newport Beach, uh, Irvine area, keep an eye out for some of our new billboards up there. Uh, that's our, our latest right now is, is major league probate major league divorce um we hold ourselves to high standards and uh are ready for the big league the big league fight versus um maybe maybe not so much so yeah that's but T tim miranda does all of our marketing um he's been running our billboards and our our uh, digital marketing for for a long time how fun um, and, and again, just to do some quick housekeeping where we are, this is Probate Weekly. We do this every Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. If you want to join live on the Zoom, love to have you guys ask questions or ra just raise your hand or put in the chat box. And then also make sure you put in your, your networking information. We have a, uh, we have real estate agents and attorneys and vendors from across the country on the call. Love to have you guys participate. You can, you can join the Zoom at probateweekly.com uh, or you can watch the live stream uh, YouTube. You can go to episodes probateweekly.com and you can see the past episodes and subscribe and such. And then you can continue the conversation on Facebook. We have a Facebook group designed for uh, referrals, for uh, attorneys, for looking for attorneys, uh, looking for realtors in other states, also posting your uh, probate content. Here's a, a good friend of ours, uh, Courtney Rollins, who's in the um, North Carolina market. And he posts his YouTubes here, both to inform us, I like watching them, as well as he gets more views on his content. So if you're trying to build your market, don't post just listed and just sold and regular real estate. Make this probate related, but love to help you build your social media strategy as you build it out. My information is all available on my link tree, linktr.ee slash Bill Gross. You can see what I'm up to there, different programs. In a week from uh, yesterday on the 15th, I'm going to do my my uh, um, email mastermind class again, and that's a fairly cost uh, effective $97 for an hour and then four half hour follow ups on building your marketing through using email, which is very fundamental. But I do this class for my team. I want to share that. And then again, our guest today, really fortunate to have uh, Zach Whitman from Antonia and Miranda, um, a very uh, you know successful, well-known uh, firm in San Diego, family laws are focused on divorce, but his specialty, as you can hear quite clearly, is probate uh, litigation and estate litigation. Really lucky to have him and feel free to reach out to him and his firm for those appropriate cases. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, the kind of business side. Um, you mentioned that at your firm, you have somebody who does that. So do they also 
look out for your book of business and then you just kind of you're just an attorney and the cases kind of come in that the uh, firm is creating for you do you have a personal role in your marketing or social media or do you uh, just focus on the actual um, litigation part yeah so Tim kind of runs you're here but you're here on this call so you do something right promote my personal self but um from from a firm perspective uh the the marketing is what it is I I maybe get my opinions asked every now and then but for the most part it's Tim Tim Miranda running that um we vet through the clients through through me I'm the managing attorney of our of the probate department we have five attorneys in our department right now hoping to, to grow to, to about 10 hopefully by by mid next year we should have 10 full-time probate litigation attorneys Ooh. in our department so we're, we're rapidly growing in, in probate um but yeah it's it's the I like the network. I like to market. So, if folks on here, give me a call. I'm glad to talk shop. But um, our social media and, and the firm itself is run by Tim. And so, when you say you're hiring more attorneys, are you looking for acquiring attorneys that have a book of business, or are you more looking for attorneys to handle your caseload that you guys have enough already? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, I'm I'm not a. a we're looking for talent is what we're really looking for. So, if a, a good quality attorney is ready to litigate um because that's what we do we're litigators i can i i can take an estate planner and help them learn litigation i can help a litigator learn how to estate plan um we have really good uh attorneys here senior attorneys qualified attorneys that can help train um so yeah we're, we're not opposed to to anybody looking to to make their mark in, in probate litigation in southern california and as we continue to expand northward if now um, not that you are, but if you had a, you know, a nephew or a you know, family member starting in real estate and they were interested in probate or working with attorneys, networking with attorneys for business, how would you, I know you must get solicited and there's a million realtors that cold call and do kinds of crazy stuff. How would you recommend somebody that you wanted to help or mentor? How would you recommend them to build their business development uh, to both learn this uh, niche as well as to um build their business or book a business in this area yeah i think the the place i would start first and foremost is a really good title company mm. uh, knowing title understanding vesting and having a true grasp of um what type of title issues will result in probate uh, is a big deal that's a good way to set yourself apart as a real estate agent truly understanding a right of survivorship joint tenancy what to look for on a deed mm. that could result in a probate issue. Um, mm. And listening to your title company, title rep, using a good title rep that could uh, advise you on, hey, you have this listing, but you're gonna be needing probate, do that before you get under contract. Um, it's definitely um, an issue that I see where we're under contract and they're ready to close and they realize, hey, we have deceased John Smith on here that we have to clear. And I can Where were you for 90 days? Where were you for six months? Well, we've been doing for a while, but um, maybe it's back up the line of title. Maybe I mean, it when you inherit property and you put five kids on title and then you just sit on it and one sibling lives in the house for the next 20 years. Well, maybe you, you don't you don't follow the deed properly or 
Uh, one of them is titled their, their one-fifth share into the trust. What is that done? Okay, well, it's severed joint tenancy for their share. So then it's the, really having a true understanding of vesting and a form of title. And the title presumptions will go a long way to identifying those issues before you get under contract. Um, it's, a, it's a great fun project for me to try to fix that, but it's gonna be really expensive and it's maybe 50-50 chance the court will, will agree with me and we can close the deal. Uh, maybe we can't. So that's a place I would really uh, look to, to hone your expertise and use your resources uh, with a good title company is probably a good start. Um, and then once, once you start working with an attorney, I, I think a big a thing that would go a long way is humility, honestly. Um, if you haven't done a probate sale, don't don't sugarcoat it and tell me you have because I'll learn pretty quick whether you have or not. Uh, if you come tell me you want to do a seven-day close through a probate administration, you clearly don't know about your notice of proposed action you're going to have to do. And, and maybe that's an issue. Maybe it's um, maybe it's not. Maybe it is. But being honest with the attorney that says, hey, I've never done a probate sale. I have this listing. I think it's subject to probate. Um, what should I do? I, I'm glad to work with the agents to teach them the process or, or what do I need from the probate side and what do you need from the real estate side? But if you're coming in trying to, to bloviate the posture that you know what you're doing in probate, you better know what you're doing in probate because you'll be exposed pretty quickly um, if you haven't. And so humility and, and working with your resources to truly trust your title reps um, is probably the two biggest areas I'd suggest. If I'm in a little pain to hope with this discussion, it's because I'm, I'm living one where I had a client and we had one piece of property and then we had another one. And it was subject to litigation as well as probate and uh, and and appellate litigation. So you have years and all kinds of documents. And we we I I went with a new title company hoping they get better service. And they told us we're good to go. And here we are ready to close. And I guess because the dollar amount, they up they have somebody else underwrite the file. Oh gee, we need two belts and three suspenders on this on this outfit. And next thing you know, and my attorney's passed, rightfully so. I am too. So I don't know, are you able to, is there a particular title company you work with? Do you want to give a plug to a particular title rep or title company that you feel particularly comfortable with? They're all, or, or are they all kind of the same? They're all kind of like good days, bad days, good files, bad files. Who the hell knows what you're going to get? Yeah, ultimately, most of the, 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 big, the big title companies use the same underwriters. Yep. So you're going to end up with the same ultimate underwriting attorneys that you're dealing yep. with. Um, I don't want to name names and lose business from somebody else that doesn't get mentioned, but um, my my people know who they are, and I use them pretty regularly, and they they end up sending me quite a lot of business, so I appreciate them. But if if you're if you're a title rep looking to grow your book of business, um, marketing with probate attorneys is a great idea as well. It's it's a great reciprocal relationship with the title agent and the probate attorney. I get. I get more business from from title than I do from real estate agents because they they're the, one, they're the ones that see the problem and they're advising their agents, hey, this is your problem. This is my probate guy to go to. And so the, the probate attorneys, I, I recommend them getting to know the, the the title reps. It's a great place for, for a probate attorney to, to build their book of business. And it can be a very symbiotic relationship, both with the real estate agent and the title company. Good to know. You know, I know that 
in LA County, the top probate attorneys by volume, by far their business more comes from realtors than goes out to realtors, right? That's their source of business for the most part. I've never heard anybody talk about title and I've always tried to get in with the companies. I just find them, they have a select group of people they work with, they're a tough nut to crack. So, uh, and rightfully so. Um, so kind of last question I have now, anybody else in the call here, if you have a question, I don't, it's funny, I don't see any, I don't know if that means you guys are mesmerized by my discussion. I'm enjoying myself, so <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what what um, what percentage of your workday are you in court now? And how is that different or the same as the percentage you were in court pre-COVID? Um, well, you mean making virtual appearances versus in-person appearances? That in-person, I think you know. What percentage of time do you still today make? You must go in-person, I imagine, for actual hearings and actual trial because you're a litigator more so than the average probate administration attorney. So I'm just trying to get an idea of how how less often are you in court than you used to be? I'm in court. If if I have a hearing, I'm going to be in person. Um, our office, it's it's literally like you my curtains were open. You could see the building as, as close as possible in San Diego. Um, my out of county, obviously, I'm not driving up to Riverside or LA for a case management hearing or whatnot. But um, our office is is our our protocol is if you can be in person, go in person. Um, so we're, we're there in person in the courtroom um, almost every time. It's it's a lot easier to build a rapport with the court, especially in San Diego with the turnover in the, in the judges. Um, it's pretty important to build that reputation and, and have that face time with the court. So we're really in, in all the time, uh, our office, our attorneys are in person. I mean, I think we had six hearings today for across our department. So um, it's, it's a lot in person. I do not enjoy the virtual appearances. Um, it's just, it's, it's hard. It's, it's the tech always gets in the way there's some sound issue or you're you're echoing or somebody wants to talk at the same time um so it's just a lot easier to be in person um so that's we're, we're in person and remember your desk used to be set up where we had a view out the window inside yeah. the actual courthouse right so a little bit bigger office so good for you if you so I do, and I, I would say to anybody on the call, uh, as a real estate agent, we don't often have to go for court confirmations. You don't have to, but I would say, why would you not? What a great chance to learn and give better service to your customer being there in person. And on the buying side in court, uh, I've won at least two cases or two properties for investors in the last two years. Otherwise, I wouldn't have got paid on because I heard things the judge said that the party online, for whatever reason, weren't paying attention or were distracted or something happened, but we got the property. So I I definitely urge all real estate agents, when you have a chance to go to court, go, even something that's routine, go and learn what routine looks like. I think, um, you know, as a probate administrator, you, you're not gonna go to these, but like the uh, uh, letters of authority are pre-approved and the judge is just gonna, as a matter of course, read the case, if there's no objection, approve it. I tell the real estate agents, go anyhow. Yes, it's routine, but, go learn what routine looks like so you can tell your customer that they don't need to show up or they can and here's what you should expect is going to happen. So I really admire that about you guys. I know we had the same discussion last time about that's why you're located there. And uh, of course, being litigator, it's a little different than administration, but I think that's a big advantage that you're offering your your clients be, being close. Well, and it, it, you present different. It's a lot. You have a different uh, 
once you've done it enough, you have a different confidence in court. Mm. You're not hiding behind a computer screen. So it's, right. it is easier. Court confirmations are fun hearings, guys. If you have a court confirmation hearing, it's kind of auction houses with pounding the gavel. So it's kind of fun experience to just to see those anyways. Yes. Uh, but to, to, to see the court, to see probate, uh, at least in San Diego County, the, it's not scary. It, it, it feels like it should be for your clients. Um, but if you can show, if you've gone there enough and you can tell them like, Hey, this is how it works. It's really not that intense of a process. It, it may give them a little bit more peace of mind going into it. Uh, especially if your clients are heirs, if you have heirs as the clients, they're, they're dealing with the loss and their emotions of that already. So any bit of peace of mind you can give them on what the process is going to be, or it's going to go this smoothly. Um, it, it sets you apart from your peers and it shows that you know what you're doing and your confidence in the, in the court and the comfortability in the courtroom, not only as an attorney, but an agent or, or a fiduciary as well. It's, it's um, it just kind of, it shows that it's not that intense of a process. Trial, trial is obviously intense and really scary, but um, most of these routine hearings, pre, pre-approval or even um, court confirmations are, are pretty straightforward processes. And I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm weird, but I find them enjoyable. <laughs> so. I think it's exciting. It's like a game, it's, it's fun. Um, and I, I like to meet the customer in LA County. There's like a little coffee shop on the second floor. And I said, well, meet me there and I'll walk you to the, the courtroom uh, just to make them feel more comfortable because it's very tense. There's a lot of tense people in one room, not a lot anymore, but there's a number of tense people in the room. And if you're the one that's calm, you're going to be the person that's going to help your customer get through the process. So I, I would encourage anybody on this call, if you have an opportunity to go to court in your local county, go and come back and share your, your experience. I, I'll say this. I've given this advice a couple hundred times. I've never had anybody tell me they regret going. I've only had people come back and say, I learned a lot. It was a great experience. And that's how I built my business going to court every day. So I would encourage you all to do that. Well, look, Zach, I, you know, I know at your hourly rate, I can't afford to go much longer. No, it's the end of our hour. I, you know, I really enjoy talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for the time you spend and being willing to educate us. Um, and, um, just, you know, I, I just can't thank you enough. I really appreciate the time we spent today and, and being on here. So, um, Thank you. And welcome back. Thanks for having me. Anytime you want me, I'm here. And and for the rest of you, our guest today was an attorney from San Diego, California. Uh, Antoine Miranda is the law firm and expertdivorcelaw.com is one of the domains they have. And the other one is antoinemiranda.com. And they handle divorces as a big part of their business. Um, but as he mentioned, Zach is the head of the uh, probate litigation and estate litigation department. They also do estate planning in the San Diego area. Please feel free to reach out to them. And there's a contact button right on the website. Or if you need some help there, reach out to me. I'd be more glad to connect you guys. So again, uh, Zach, thank you so much. Uh, everybody else, probateweekly.com. If you want to come on the Zoom call, uh, past episodes, go to episodes.probateweekly.com. Appreciate the likes, subscribes, comments. Was this helpful today? Did you learn something? What would you like to learn on that? And we'll we'll see you guys next uh, Thursday at 4 p.m. Thanks so much. Zach, thanks again. Thanks,